0: to motopod the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing this is episode number 696 devilishly close to the episode 700 i'm jim mcdowell your host for tonight back from his travels is rich joet rich good travels bad travels uh
1: so so jim yeah travels travel and it's not the most pleasant thing in this uh 2022 season that we have going on but uh, you anyway, know it's good to be back and uh, Excellent uh, solo show last week. Uh, so thank you for that.
0: Yeah, just something
1: for the listeners to
0: kind of keep us up to date on and all that. And yep. since we're talking about the listeners, we should thank uh, Scott Saunter for his donation to the show. Continued support of the show, I should say. Indeed. And also our some of our friends at Patreon have also supported the show this week as well. So we want to thank all of you for that. If you could like the show, you can donate and keep the help to keep the show going. And you can do that by going to our webpage, www.modopodcast.com. Left-hand side, there are links to PayPal and Patreon. You can donate for as little as $2 US. And every little bit helps to keep us going and keep things moving on as uh, the season comes along. If you like the show, but you can't donate, that's great. Fine. Totally understand. But if you'd be kind enough to go over to iTunes, give us a review on iTunes. That'll help push us in the algorithm back up so people can find us all again and uh, that would be appreciated as well with that rich i know that you may have some things that you may want to talk about from Magello.
1: yes i won't dwell too long because i think you covered it comprehensively in the show that you did on your own last time out jim but really it was just a couple of things mostly to do with moto three in fact just in terms of observations and things that are a little bit interesting uh because you kind of spot Trends and things that seem to suddenly switch, which are unusual in terms of form. And the thing that struck me in terms of Moto three uh, in Mugello was the odd drop in form suddenly that Artigas had, which coincided with a sudden upturn in form with Tatsuki Suzuki. And obviously they, well, they didn't swap teams, but obviously Suzuki took Artigas's place in the Leopard squad, and he's had a pretty rough time of it so far this year, and then suddenly Mugello, Suzuki came alive uh, and that's something that we saw continued into the race that we're going to be talking about in Barcelona shortly so that was the first observation, which was just a a little quirk of timing or whatever the reasons for that might be, and in actual fact Artigas' slight drop off in form, because he's had a very strong season up until now I think that his woes, whatever they are, continued into the Barcelona weekend and the other thing I just wanted to pick up on well two things actually first of all my usual rant about replays that Dorna showed during the main race action so we got to miss not that we want to see people crashing in real time because we don't want to see people crashing. full stop but lo and behold cut away to whatever it was some person in the pits no doubt and then we go back to find that fodgers in the in the gravel having allegedly slipped off on a visor tear off which seemed a little bit odd but i suppose that that could happen. I mean, you know, I suppose contact patch of a back tyre or front tyre compared to a tear off strip on a visor. Yeah, I suppose, you know, full lean angle, full power could happen. So yet again, why don't we have picture in picture? You know, I, I will keep on about this until such time as they change it. And more pertinently, in the race, I, I'm starting to really feel that the long lap penalty is not really a penalty any longer because at Mugello, we saw that uh, just trying to go back. If people remember Suzuki and Dennis Onchu came together in the first turn. It was, I think you described it as a bit more of a racing incident albeit on closer inspection with a few different angles. It did rather look as if Suzuki tried a sneaky move up the inside and kind of kind of took Dennis out. So I think the long lap in my opinion was probably about right, but having taken that long lap, and dropped back a reasonable distance. Suzuki came through and finished third. So is the long lap really enough of a penalty? We're going to, or I'm certainly going to be getting into some thoughts about race direction calls as we go forward in this podcast, because there's quite a bit to talk about. So I'm just not sure that the long lap is really as much of a a penalty as it really needs to be to deter riders from certain types of behaviour and certain types of moves. So just a thought. Um, other than that, really, I mean, the only other thought I had really was that Moto2, Moto3, and to a certain degree, although it's starting to change a little bit, none of the series really have a runaway leader at the moment. And the form is just really mixed from race to race, which is great from the point of view of us as race fans and watching avidly to see who's you know doing well and who's do- not doing so well. So, yeah, I think, you know, we'll get into the Barcelona stuff, but that was really just my few little thoughts that I had on the back of Mijello. anyway, which was a great weekend some crazy weather, some mega lightning bolts that they caught on camera you mentioned about whether they should be allowed to race in those sorts of conditions Jim which I thought was an interesting question, I don't know that probably, presumably there's not a regulation on that, but certainly the, the thunder storm was pretty close by because they were catching those great big lightning bolts in the hills just across from the circuit weren't they, so yeah dodgy. dodgy yeah, that's a good way <laughs> to put it yeah. Some good thoughts on it, different things. I'm sure we'll get
0: into more of all of this as we go through the uh, Barcelona weekend, but uh, mm-hmm. we need to go through some news that has come out in between there. So let's get everybody up to speed on that. The first thing of interest we all know Mark Marquez had a fourth surgery on his humerus bone, but what we didn't know was exactly what the surgery was. We do know that he went to Minnesota to the Mayo Clinic here in the United States to have it done. It was what is known as a rotational humerus osteotonomy. Now, I had to go talk to the doctor to understand what this one was all about. Yeah, that's new even on me. They cut his humerus bone along the long axis, so they cut it from the shoulder to the elbow, and then they rotated it 30 degrees, screwed and plated it back together again. Ouch. Exactly. I am like, holy crap. This poor guy, I think we all know that he has not been able to race as Mark Marquez has raced before. He's the it was a problem. So apparently, this problem is is that however the bone grew back, it grew back to where it was rotated in either in his shoulder or in his elbow or, or both. I, you know, I don't know if they only turned it one end or anything like that, but this hopefully I think will be the magic bullet that allows Mark to ride again competitively. Now, one of the things that I read from that, you know, he was talking to this guy's at the Mayo Clinic and he said, well, how quick can I get back on a bike? And the surgeon looked at him and said, if that's all you're worried about, don't even bother coming to the clinic. So, stern words from the doctor is like, Yeah, hey, I'm not going to deal with this if you're not going to give it the time to heal. I've heard anywhere between six to nine months, which means he's done for the season, which means we know there will be somebody else who will be the king of the ring because Marquez won't even be at the Saxon ring for that race. Definitely. Yeah. So, so, here's my question to you, Rich. Let's say that I think you would agree when Marquez was ripping off championships year after year after year, that, that 16, 17, 18, Sort of run of form that he was on. He, he was mm-hmm. untouchable. Okay. Yeah. So let's assume that that is Mark Marquez's 100% effort, writability point. And let's say that he's probably now been writing, what would you say, somewhere in the 65 to 70% range of his capabilities? Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Well, we can agree. We can agree on that. Yeah. My question is if this surgery, puts Mark Marquez back to where he can ride, say, 85 to 90, 90% of what he was in that run of form of, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. Can Mark Marquez beat Cuauhtararo, Benyat, and all the rest and be a champion again? Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it? That's why I ask you the tough questions, Rich. It's the law
1: of diminishing returns, I I think, really, at this point for Mark. I mean, year on year, he gets older. I mean, yeah, he'll recover from, well, let's say, hopefully, he recovers, makes a full recovery from this latest surgery. But the longer it goes on, the more surgeries you have, the more wear and tear you suffer, the older you become. And this doesn't even bring in the whole eye issue that he has and his propensity to have big crashes, which he's always done. I don't know. I think, you know, even a 85 90% Mark Marquez, is still competing against much younger guys now who are at 100%, and that's a severe challenge. I mean, I, without a doubt, he's going to win a lot of races, provided, you know, he is able to come back fairly fit and this latest operation doesn't have any complications. Because, of course, we must remember that one of the major issues that he has faced, as well as the bone not setting in the right position, was that he had a major infection in that bone as a result of the various shenanigans, which have never been fully revealed and that's private. So that's fair enough. But we know that that recovery or or the fact that he returned what five days after that arm break in the second race at Hareth, if you remember, it was a double header, wasn't it? And he came back, uh, missed the Friday, having broken his arm on the Sunday previously and then rode on the Saturday. I think he pulled out on the Sunday morning. Yes.
0: I think that evening they made a decision that he wasn't going to ride. He couldn't do it
1: physically unable to we'll kind of touch on this a little bit later on with some other stuff that's gone on and you know a recurring theme throughout motor gp history going back into the 500s if you think about dr costa and some of the things that he was getting up to in terms of patching riders up and sending them out i mean nobody's forcing the riders to do it nobody's putting a gun to their head it's true but you know this is their job so if they can do it they'll go out and do it if they're allowed so you know should mark have taken part in that race the following week after that arm break no and then you know he had the the re-break when he opened the window as as we were told okay everybody knows that that's not really what happened but and then the infection and so on and so on so that has to have taken a, a colossal wear and tear on his sort of physical situation and up to the point where now we find out that the bone never even set back in the right position in the first place and that has exacerbated the problem that he has in that shoulder on that side as well so it's been kind of like a double problem on top of everything else so i mean i don't know obviously this is pure speculation but he's it's hard to imagine that he'll be back this year or if he does come back it might be for the last couple of races perhaps just to get his eye in but meanwhile they've got a new bike that they're continuing to develop will it develop in the mark marquez direction probably not because we know that hrc have been guilt is probably not quite the right word but i think they are seeing perhaps the error and the folly of their ways in having a bike that only suits one rider so this year's bike was clearly brought out to try and make it more rider for other people with varying degrees of success so far it must be said But so I don't, I, th- I think in that rambling on and on Jim, I think the answer to your question is I don't think we'll, we'll ever see Mark Marquez back to that kind of run of championships that he put in before because he's just moving on in age and the talent pool coming up is just so strong that he'll have a tough time beating him like that but as i say i'm sure he'll win uh you know a reasonable hat full of races if he does come back with some reasonable level of fitness and mobility and and so on in that arm and hopefully he will because that would be great for the for the championship and for us as fans yeah i
0: hope that he can come back i hope he can win races mm. and i think that would be enough there's no he has nothing to prove to anyone in my opinion you're an eight times champion, yeah would you like to have one more ty rossi sure father time wins every race and that is against him although rossi's longe- longevity has been remarkable yeah can Marquez be that have that longevity i i don't know not with the way his body has been ruined mm. <laughs> but
1: and I think the you know, we're not really, I mean, some people undoubtedly are, but we're not, as a, as a general comment on the sport at large, we're not really missing Valentino Rossi, are we? You don't really kind of come to the end of a race and think, oh, if only Rossi was in there, it would have been so much better. So, you know, people come and go. I mean, that's just the nature of, of our sport. Um, and, you know, MotoGP will succeed in the post-Marquez Mar- era whenever that happens to be. Hopefully he'll have you know, two or three seasons, perhaps, maybe maybe a couple more than that even, perhaps. But um, I think his utter dominant glory days won't be repeated. I mean, I'm pretty sure of that. But I'm sure we'll see some mega mega rides from him at certain tracks where he's very, very strong. And obviously, from his point of view, it'll be bitter to miss a Saxon ring because, as you say, he's never been beaten there, I don't think, in any class. So, you know, for him to step out when he has, is clearly quite a desperate move, but obviously a very, very necessary one from his point of view. Because from what I understand, from what I've read and listened to, it's obviously been very painful for him to even compete. And he's, as a guy who's only in his 30s still, you know, tanked up on painkillers on a daily basis. I mean, that is not a good thing. So clearly the surgery had to happen now and would have happened earlier if it hadn't been for the weakness in that bone from the infection, which is, I think now, Cured enough to make this latest surgery that he has just successfully had, thankfully, it's safe to do. So, you know, um, hopefully he'll be back as soon as possible. But I think we're looking 2023, really, in terms of a serious Mark Marquez coming back. Yes, I agree. Also undergoing surgery is Jorge Martin. This is to his right
0: hand, which is to correct the numb feeling that he gets during the races. It started at the Jerez test. And then continued to Le Mans and now has continued into Magello and Barcelona. And now they realize they can't wait any longer. So it, I'm not too sure exactly what type of surgery he's undergoing for that one. I, it, I heard something about it repairing the nerve, Yeah, uh, but uh, hopefully a Martine will be back to the Jorge Martín that we have seen previously. With that, let's talk a little silly season it is in Full and complete total swing. So, thank goodness we did the 2023 grid when we did. Yeah. Because uh, we already know that we are wrong uh, <laughs> on most of that grid. But what I is, what let's get up to date with like what we know is kind of going on right now. And the, the big rumor floating around the Barcelona paddock was the fact that Jack Miller was going to be going to KTM to ride, ride alongside Brad Bender. Now, people have said this because of the fact that he's managed by A- Aki IO and IO has got the link to KTM and that's where it's going. But We always say there, where there's smoke, there's fire. But then it came out that Oliveira was offered twice his salary to drop down to the Tech Three squad, but he's refused that. So he's on his own, looking for a ride. He was spotted by—I love how this all rolls together. This is what this is. This is the funny part to be about this. (laughs) He was then spotted by eagle-eyed journalists who saw him wandering into the into the Grassini Hospitality Center. So is he getting? the seat at Grissini alongside DG Antonio. If he does, then where does Bastianini go? Well, that must mean Bastianini is headed to the factory seat. Would not, would he not? Or is Bastianini going to Pramac to replace uh, Martine as Martine then goes to the factory, con, factory, factory Ducati? Because it's been rumored that he has that in his hip pocket and it's already a done deal. And it just hasn't been announced because the timing hasn't been right. But, I wonder if ben Yaya has a veto on it because I, I honestly believe that ben Yaya wants Miller there because he knows he can beat Miller. Miller is going to be gone, so he's going to have to pick. Does he have any sway in picking who's going to be the guy who's sitting beside him? I don't know who he does or if he doesn't. But if it was me, I—that's I, a hard choice. I mean, you kind of got to think who you're going to pick. You know, keep your enemies—was it keep your enemies close and your friends closer or something—or. Other way around. But yes. the way around then, well, that's <laughs> yeah. me. I'm dyslexic. That's how it comes out sometimes, guys. So I don't know. Uh your thoughts on any of that as we go through that part of it?
1: Well, I, th- I think the Jack Miller to KTM is almost certainly a done deal by the sounds of it. Um clearly, as we said when we were together in the last show, you know, the musical chairs at G County, you know, the music stopping and Miller's the last his last one stood up, unfortunately for him. I'm sure Ducati are loathe to let him go, but like a couple of other factors, they have this problem of, you know, too many good riders to find seats for. And I mean, Jack's form is very up and down uh, and he is plagued by this race in, race out, more or less problem of not really managing to make the back tyre last all the way through to the end when other people are able to kind of really come on strong at the end of races. So, and Miller going to katie I mean, I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent about that move, really, in the sense that it smacks a little bit of the Petrucci situation when he uh, dropped out of the Ducati work squad. It kind of, to me, seems like a little bit of a sideways move for KTM, really. But obviously, Gridotti is now the team manager at KTM work squad, and he and Miller have a lot of uh, track record with each other and a strong friendship from their time together at Pramac. So that plus the Aki connection makes sense. But I mean, Jim, do you really think Miller's going to work miracles on that KTM? No. I don't. I always caveat these things, with, I hope he does. Sure. But at the moment, I can't see how that would really be a sea change for them because they've got much bigger problems than the rider. It seems, I think the problem is the bike really. And okay. Jack brings the Ducati knowledge with him, but I don't know. It just seems like an odd move to me and losing Oliveira as part of that deal doesn't make a lot of sense
0: yeah i think miller will get along with the ktm better than he gets along with the ducati which is i know something strange to say but i look at how he rode when he was at lcr he really rode that honda well and he was very quick on it i mean he did only win on it once he only won in the ring he's obviously had far more success at ducati but he was a more mature rider remember jack skipped moto two he went from moto three directly to moto gp
1: yeah
0: so i think kind of going back to the to the the instead of the l4 that the ducati is to a more along the line of the v4 tighter v and with the stability that ktm has in the braking i think it's a better match than what he has at ducati is he going to win races I Me, mean, probably rain race sure why not there's going to be mm. the odd craziness that's going to happen. We've seen it before, so
1: possibly. But it does rather strike you that really K- what KTM need is a talisman kind of to come along and really just in the way that Brad Binder is occasionally able to do is really just do something different on that bike to overcome its problems. Clearly that's not going to be Pedro Acosta for a year or two, perhaps because we'll get to him in a, in a little while, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit of a fan of Oliver, although he is having a very, very up and down, more down than up season, it's true. But then show me a KTM rider who isn't. I mean, they seem to be just lost in terms of direction, in terms of development. Either they have too many parts and they're lost or they kind of don't have anything at all and they're just stuck with what they got. So not helped by having two rookies in the satellite squad. Interesting Remind me to mention Tech 3 in a little while, because I heard something very interesting about them earlier on today. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we
0: get to the race. Yeah.
1: Um, So, but anyway, it would appear from what what we've been hearing, and it was being mentioned numerous times over the weekend on the dawn feed, that that's uh, really just waiting for an announcement to happen, isn't it? I think the interesting thing, though, is you raised, Jim, is what do Ducati do about Bastionini and uh, martin because much like i was saying about artigas and suzuki we suddenly saw this week weekend a, a, a bit of a switch in fortune martin went back to his old forks and settings and suddenly he was back to the guy that we were seeing you know frequently last year whereas Bastianini's had a few races where he's been crashing a hell of a lot as well okay he won a race in Le Mans, but I think from their point of view, from Ducati's point of view, the sensible play for them really would be to announce both those riders as full works Ducati riders with 2023 bikes next year and just let them slug it out for the next few races and decide after the summer break which one gets the the step up. But take the pressure off them in terms of this competition between each other and just say, look, you're both going to be on equal machinery. It's just that one of you will be in the work squad and one won't and there are not necessarily advantages or disadvantages to being in the work squad because there's a lot more pressure if you're on the red bike so i think but the ducati have a terrible terrible track record in terms of rider management and psychological management of riders so whether they'll take that approach obviously remains to be seen but at the moment, it, you couldn't really choose between them, could you, in terms of which one should get the nod to go in alongside Banyaya? I very much doubt that he has any kind of say on the matter, because again, Ducati just don't give their riders that much respect, I don't think. Yeah, there's... I,
0: I, I couldn't pick between them. Um, nah, not, not at the moment. Not now. I mean, early on, I would have said was a, a in for it. Um, I think we need to see what happens with Martine after his surgery, and see. And you know, he's gone back to the old forks. And if he keeps doing what he's doing, then you know, you guys say, "Hey, that's better than what Bastianini's doing." But I'm not making those decisions. I did not one thing. Somebody's going to get screwed because it's Ducati. That's just how that's going to play out. Yep. Quattrararo has signed for two more years with Yamaha, which we talked about that, and I think we both said, yeah, you know, he was going to return. The real, cre- the real question to all this is why? Because he has been very vocal that that motor has not got enough oomph behind it. Well, we may know. David Emmett tweeted this, and it was from Craig Scarborough of F1 fame. If you follow anything with F1, Scarborough has a lot of engineering stuff uh, on his Twitter feed about the cars and whatnot. But he says that – he tweeted out that Luca uh, Marmorini is it the ex-Toyota – an ex-Ferrari F1 engine designer, is going to consult with Yamaha on their engine. Now, he's already worked with Aprilia, and we know that this Aprilia has come very good in the last two years with their engine. And their engine is probably one of the better ones on the grid right now. Mm-hmm. So he must know what he's doing. What I'm thinking is that he's going to come in and tell Yamaha you got to get rid of the cross plane crank. That's gotta go bye-bye. Because if you think about it, when Yamaha developed that cross plank, cross plane crank idea, it was in the era of very small electronic wizardry. Because it was a it was, you know, it was actually for their super bike program. Mm. And then it made its way into the M1. And Rossi loved it because you had that it smooths that power curve out. It flattens out. It becomes like a big bang engine where you get a big pulse of power, the tire grips, and then you go on. Now, the problem with that is, is that because you're in an inline four and you have that crank, you can't rev that thing up without it kind of creating a vibration that you got to then dampen back out. And it's it's a limit to how much power you can get. You can't really rev that thing very high. Now, 90 degree four, you can do that, right? You can have a very, you know, they're primarily balanced because you get uh, cylinders go to opposite directions and whatnot at that point so i think they're gonna he's going to come in and say go back to a conventional inline four concept that is just normal and then they're going to twist the rev band on it and get some more top end out of it which
1: is what carterara wants i really hope we get a screamer engine back in MotoGP. gp that would be great I, I think that's where it is i think you've got enough electronics and you have
0: enough aerodynamic wizardry which that's a whole nother rant that we're going to save for five week <laughs> break, because I I've, I've I'm done with
1: wings and winglets and shifty bikes. and Well, we, stuff yeah, that's on the list of things to talk about tonight. Provided we don't spoiler alert, people. I hate it. <laughs> provided we don't go with a two hour limit, but uh... well, I'm sure we're going to be pushing it. So
0: that is uh, the, the, anything there with Quattro rich because that's the last thing i have for news and I know you have- yeah i mean that
1: was the big news story i suppose of the weekend really not a big surprise really i mean where else was he going to go and from yamaha's point of view who else were they going to bring in that was you know assured to give them the sort of results that he's giving them because we must always preface this with the fact that the other three people on yamaha's are absolutely nowhere to be seen so quattro is obviously doing something in terms of the way he rides that bike that the others can't replicate. So it was absolutely imperative that Yamaha retained his services. And with the Suzuki bombshell news, his negotiating position was weakened severely in terms of the threat to go to HRC, for example. So I think it was all but inevitable really that he would sign that piece of paper. And to be, you know, the guy is leading the championship and has been turning in, OK, early season performances were frustrating him, but he was still banking the points. And now he's hitting a run of form, which is ominous for everybody else, <laughs> I think. So why wouldn't he resign? And if there's, you know, the chance with this engine guru guy coming in to make some improvements in those areas that they're struggling a bit. Although I have to say that, you know, the bike didn't look too bad down the main straight in Barcelona, did it? Mm-hmm. I think it's coming off slow turns onto, far, onto long straights is probably where they've got more of an issue. But coming off a fast turn onto a long straight, you know, didn't seem to be having any trouble at all. So, yeah, just just made makes sense. Really wasn't a big surprise. All I had for news. So if you want to cover the couple of things you had there, we can do that. Uh, well, no, I think that's that's kind of all of the news, really. There was a, an interesting piece of listener feedback. We're, we're going to get into that now, Jim, or do we hold that over because you know what
0: I was looking at I was looking at so many thanks to Lee for his very nice email they sent. He was very complimentary of 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 you, Rich, and in the show in general. Yeah, um, there he raises a couple of questions in here. One of which is an easy answer. The other one is a very long answer. So, if you wouldn't mind, Lee, if you would indulge us, we will take this and shelve it off to the five-week break that we have, and kind of do a show based around your two questions, or at least put it in a show for two questions. So the, what you have here is very interesting, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody else and whatnot. So, let's us shelve that one, Rich, and we'll just push
1: that over to uh, the five-week break. Yeah, because we got the question from Paul that came in. I think yes. you mentioned it on the last show, Jim. So I think we'll probably do it, as you say, in the off season, or not the off season, sorry, in the summer break, which kind of feels like an off season because it's five weeks long now. Sure. It's like World Superbike when they used to go on hiatus. Yeah, yes, exactly. So we'll pick up on a few of these sort of quite detailed questions. But thank you, Lee, for your email. I'm not going to read the first part. That would be uh, terribly self indulgent, but it was very complimentary to the show. Uh, so we really appreciated that. And two great questions, which do require quite detailed answers. Certainly the second part of that question does. So um, and I have some particular thoughts on it, which I'm looking forward to discussing with Jim. And no doubt, Lee, you and others will give some feedback on that when we get to that. So that'll be in a few weeks' time. So bear with us. But yeah, look forward to getting to that.
0: So I think the only sad thing that we have to talk about is the fact that there were uh, several rider fatalities in the Isle of Man, because it is running now. Um, Always a tragedy, never like talking about it, but it's one of those things that you're never going to stop someone from doing it. And I'm glad that we do kind of have these old throwback things to remind us again, just how dangerous it is that or how dangerous that this sport is that we love. It is with great sadness that we wish, you know, thoughts and prayers go to every one of the families of the riders who have succumbed to the race at the Isle of Man.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, it would be remiss of us not to mention it. The racing week is still going on, so we've got races uh, tomorrow and Friday, I think. So we'll perhaps touch on the TT as a whole uh, when we come back. But yes, unfortunately, I mean, we see this at most. I think the only TT that's ever run without the fatality side was 1982, which is a bit of a startling statistic really but so this week um uh mark perslow in the i think it was superbike qualifying uh a chap who i must admit i, I had not heard his name before but olivier lavaral in the sidecar race number one and then yesterday davy morgan in the supersport race who's been a very long-term competitor in road racing they've all had incidents which has cost, cost them their lives uh, regrettably and there's a couple of riders uh, and the, the driver of the sidecar race in that fatality, they're both in hospital in quite serious shape. But hopefully they'll pull through. So we would be remiss not to mention it. We won't dwell on it. It's kind of the TT, isn't it? That's why I suppose it's part of the allure of the sport. And I'm sure those riders would have said that if they were going to go anyway, that's the way they would have wanted to go in competition. But doesn't make it any easier for the friends and family and so on and fellow competitors for that matter, the left behind. But uh, anyway, let's hope that the next couple of days of competitive racing go off trouble-free and without any incidents like that. And we'll talk about it a bit more next time at Jim. I agree. Let's move on to the actual race from
0: Barcelona because I got a feeling we're going to be talking about this for quite some time. <laughs> this show is going to be long enough as it is.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's go to Moto3 qualifying. In QP1, we had Rossi. Toba, Artigas, NEPA, Munoz, and Ortola. Uh, those guys you all thought maybe should have been in the first qualifying session, but they were not. Surprisingly, Ogden went through in that first session. Congratulations to the, to the, to the, to the Brit. Um, he came through a, a late, uh, late run there to get in. He had a crash late as well. Um, so his was, question was, could he be able to ride in the Q2 session? with it i'm not we weren't sure what was going to happen but about uh i don't know a few minutes into the session he did make it out which was fantastic to see i thought it was great that you know great job by the crew to put the bike back together again yeah and get yeah. going again uh Fagia threw down a stunning 148 2 lap at barcelona picking up from where he left off of magell the layup part are fast there's no <laughs> question about it uh, they're um the uh anchu came through with some late heroics to be there thereabouts for it um guivera and Falon were also in there so it was you know at the time it was like anchu it was Guvera, it was Falon, it was yamanaka uh mossy had crashed late at turn 12 that had happened and you know that wound up the qualifying kind of took everybody's light lights out of there but if we look at how the qualifying ended, it was Faggia, Anshu, Guevara, Fulon, Yamanaka, and Rossi were your top six. Garcia uh, definitely did not have much there. He was seventh. And that uh, Toba, Kelsa, Suzuki, we ran out the top ten for
1: this. Fagia's second pole,
0: which is a bit surprising, isn't it?
1: Yes,
0: couldn't get any, now he has two. But, <laughs> you know, some things don't last. And, well, you know, anyhow... <laughs> <laughs> if we look at it that way, if we move towards the race on that morning, it started out with Fagia going out front, Fall by Culvera, Rossi, then Anchu, Yamanaka. They were all right there. And uh, it was interesting that, you know, that Suzuki had kind of came to the front. We were having a great little Leopard battle there. We were having a great little Aspar battle between the, the Aspar boys, there. Suzuki would go to the front for a little, Guevara would go there. Um, you know, and this is around 15 laps to go. So we were only six laps into the race. Anchi was up front with Salvio, And then also, when we see Fagia at turn 10 riding off. And you're like, what, what happened? It was like, it had to be some form of mechanical that had happened. We're not sure, weren't sure what it was. You could hear from the onboard that the motor was running and Foggia was kind of revving it. I initially thought maybe he might have broken a gearbox, but I don't think that's what happened. I think it was I think it was uh, Matt Burt who pointed out that Foggia had been over across the really sharp end of the curves there a couple of times and may have potentially tossed a chain yeah. off the bike and the mechanical no drive was at. Now, that was a serious blow for Foggia. Uh, that was not good at all, considering the fact that he already had lost a full bucket load of points the week prior by crashing on a tear off. Again, I think that is absolutely ludicrous. I, you know, <laughs> I, every time I, you know, I hadn't heard, it, it took me a while to remember this because I, I, you know, pardon for the aside here, but I remember club racing at the time and running. We were a cycle jam in Indianapolis. It was one of the biggest, We are races of the weekend of the year. And I remember we're ahead of rule that you could not pull a tear off. You could have them on your visor, but they had to be taped and they could not be pulled off. The reason being was that you could crash on a tear off. And I will never forget Chris Ulrich, who is John Ulrich's son, and if you know or heard of anything of the team hammers Suzuki's, you know who I'm talking about. For those who may not know, you know who are in Europe or outside of the United States. Chris always stands up at that cycle gym that year and he goes, "Who of you among us has crashed on a tear off?" I will never forget that because he wanted to be able to take that tear off off the helmet. So with with I get I felt like tweeting Chris and say, "Well, I found someone who finally has. It's Fazia." <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyhow. i mean who
1: knows who knows <laughs> who knows
0: anyway that what we do know is he had a mechanical right and he, he was he was done um so we had uh three riders that wound up going down at turn 10 it was uh, yamanaka uh salvadore and Hol- holgardo Hol- they, uh, yamanaka had basically ran into uh salvadore and then holgardo had nowhere to go and that put a dampener on things for all of those guys. Well, that all that really did was break the pack into two packs because before we had about a 15 to 16 rider group there. Well, this brought it down to a leading group of seven. Munoz took some time at the front. Guevara was there. Again, this can be in any order. Pick your lap, guys, as to what it was. But it was, it was a combination of Munoz, Guevara, Masia, Suzuki, Anshu, Adrian Fernandez, who showed some form for the first time on KTM and Garcia there was this was an incredible slipstream battle because it would just change guys would go from third or fourth they would be first through the first turns Um, it was who could go late on the breaks who had who had the slipstream and it was interesting we got down to roughly six to go and Guilvera kind of pulled the pin because he got a half a second lead now in the hot conditions By himself, Guvera all weekend long was fast. Nobody was faster than him when the tires got greasy and he was doing laps all whole time in practice by himself. He was quick without the aid of any kind of a draft. So we were going to see, like, he had pulled the pin, but could he actually get away from everybody? Well, Toba went down at turn 10 following that. Then Guvera had put in basically the lap of his life almost because he was now six-tenths ahead of everybody, and that's about as far away as you need to be to keep the draft from being effective for everybody behind you. So he put his head down after having pulled you know, a half-second in the twisty bits, rode it out on the front stretch, had you know, wicked late-breaking going into one, and then rode off again through the twisty bits, again putting his head down, running an incredible lap to actually do that. Munoz was second, Suzuki, Anshu there, then Masia. Masia coming from way deep because his qualifying was terrible uh from that so uh, the thing of it was is that the things that could run 48s were at the front if you couldn't run a 48 you weren't going to be at the front when it came down to the end and really the only guy who could run 48s was Guevara. Guevara would go on to win the race munoz would get the would get the second place position so the rookie he's only had two races and I think he's in the same team as Anna Carassa, K- K- correct? So, yes, goes yeah. to, I mean, goes to show there's nothing wrong with, with her bikes. And it goes to kind of show you kind of how good Munoz is because yeah. she's no slouch. She's a World super sport 300 World Champion. I and mean, you yeah. just do not luck into that by any stretch of the imagination. So, it goes to tell you, one, how competitive Moto3 is. Number two, how good this kid is to show up and be where he is and shows that, you know, the team's doing a great job, too.
1: Absolutely. The results
0: made it reflected. So, bravo to the team for the whole way around for, for this effort. Suzuki would finish third with the Leopard Honda. Garcia would be fourth, then on to tie. McPhee, Masia, Adrian Fernandez had slid back down. Artigas on that horrible weekend again where nothing's working for that guy. Ricardo Rossi with what was a great weekend. at Magella became a no weekend here to be 11th. Kelso, uh, the tough Aussie at 12th. Then Bertoli, Bertelli, Ogden, who got a point, which was great, and Tobo would finish fifteenth and be the last points
1: finisher. Thoughts, Rich? Something I may have missed? A couple of sort of as I like to do. I mean, with Moto three, as we've said many, many times before, trying to analyze it lap by lap is almost a well, it's a thankless task because you know so much is going on, so many lead changes and action and so on. Uh, shout out for Toba who fell off and still finished 15th. I thought that was quite... That's true. A... Tober did fall. I did forget to mention that. That was good because he's having a very up and down year as well, crashing quite a lot recently. The main thing I wanted, well, apart from uh, David Munoz, who, as you say, Jim, second race, wow. <laughs> I mean, a new star who's born suddenly?
0: Eh,
1: we'll see. I forget who he's replacing on that team. Uh, as you I say, he's, he's certainly alongside uh, Anna Carrasco, but yeah, I mean, to suddenly see that bike up the front is you know, refreshing and goes to show, as you say, that all of these teams are capable of doing great things. It's, you know, really a question of certain people on, on a certain day. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I forget who he's replacing, but um, I'm assuming that he'll be on the bike for a race or two to come. Yeah, and no doubt there's a bit of a scrabble underway already to get his signature on, on a piece of paper else, yeah. for, for next year. But uh, the main thing I wanted to pick up on, though, was... Uh, Not so much in a negative way exactly but Tatsuki Suzuki again two things in fact he was one of the main culprits for massively straying into the pit lane exit coming down the straight you picked up on this last week in Mugello where he on at least two occasions went onto the grass approaching the pit lane exit at Mugello and track limits I mean I know it's not the the bit with the sensors underneath it, but I would have thought that that was a track limits infringement and going that far into the pit apron in Barcelona at full speed, because there could be somebody coming out of the pit lane for all they know. It wasn't just Suzuki doing it. So that seemed a bit odd that race direction didn't appear to have any issue with it. And we have seen that before. May I interrupt just here Mm. momentarily?
0: Yeah. On this theme with Suzuki on, it was, I found it really disconcerting because they made mention at the beginning of the mo3 race that the stewards had a long talk with everybody about trying to get behind in the slipstream and there was going to be no backing off in the middle of uh, what is it turns 13 and 14 to reposition everybody and get yourself behind for the run out as if yeah. you did it you'd be black flagged well, okay so if you're watching for that why are you not watching track limits which if we go back to Magello, Suzuki did it once. I thought, okay, maybe he got pushed off, didn't really have a good camera, angle. but he did it again a few laps later in the exact same way, and the almost yeah. like it was a carbon copy. And I'm like, how is that not a track limit, especially when you penalize someone, i.e., the guy who technically won the race by running on two inches of green paint and you got another guy that's running on three feet of grass.
1: Exactly. Well, the this inconsistency is... of
0: that is ridiculous in my mind.
1: Well, I mean, we're going to come onto this rant a little bit later on, but the inconsistency of race direction is starting to become, dare I say farcical really. Um, now of course, what you've just mentioned in terms of the talk that they had was very much a reaction to last year, where if you recall Jeremy Alcoba was deliberately back in the pack up in the race so that nobody could get the slipstream so okay they kind of took that on board for this year but then let stuff go on that was actually happening in the race and one thing of which I must just mention which was appalling was Dennis Onchi weaving around on the straights again which went without uh, uh, any mention at all uh, as far as I could tell from race direction but the other thing I wanted to pick up on with Suzuka was on the last lap coming out of either turn five or turn six I can't think now but he clearly went into the green on the last lap. And as far as I know, that demotes you a place. And yet nothing happened. So I'm just confused with the whole rules and the application of rules and penalties, because as you say, um, Guevara did it in Mugello. Okay. With three corners to go, maybe that I don't see why that should be an issue. Cause I think the rule is that if it happens on the last lap, if you, exceed track limits you can't take a long lap so you'll either get dr three seconds or or you lose a place it's lose a place automatically on the last lap if you
0: exceed track limits even if you don't have a warning you are forced to be dropped one place
1: which they imposed that penalty at Magello. and then they didn't in Barcelona on Suzuki now I'm not saying I wanted Suzuki not to finish third and he should have finished fourth I don't you know he, he, he rode a great race but he did infringed the track limit and didn't lose a place i don't understand uh, well let's be clear we're, we're not trying to besmirch any
0: of the riders no because i mean my god it's so hard to be in that draft and and, and and you know we're talking about millimeters here that we're we're dealing with our argument i think our argument is based on the inconsistency of what race control and race direction is actually going and i think i did read some stuff and we'll probably get to this a little later that they're You know, much like Formula One, where they wanted Michael Massey to disappear, kind of same thing happening here in MotoGP. They kind of want race direction to be replaced with something else. It's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. Again, I want good close racing. I want to see great action. However, I want to see an equally applied rule book
1: across the entire
0: thing. Yeah. Period.
1: Yeah. Well, otherwise, there's no point having the rule in the first place. Precisely. So that, that was really my takeaway thoughts from the Moto3 race. A great race, best race of the day, as is usually the case in terms of pure racing and, and action on the track. So, yeah, there we go. But Foggia, the wheels are coming off, aren't they? And Gravara is starting to... I mean, if he hadn't had a couple of unlucky DNFs earlier in the season, he'd be probably leading the championship now. As it is, Garcia is a little bit in front. Do you want me just to quickly run through the... I was going to the was gonna grab the
0: points here real quick to wrap
1: Off this up. Go.
0: Garcia is on 150 points. He is 16 ahead of Gulera who's on 134. Then Masi is on 103. Fagia is on 95. Now, that's 95 points, right? So he that puts Fagia roughly, what, 45 points behind, uh, getting 55 points behind or so yep. to get there. Now, he was 60 points behind Acosta with a lot less races to go. So anything is possible. However, I don't see it happening because I don't think the Honda is anywhere near as good as the KTM is this year. I think the KTM is a superior motorcycle. It turns better. It stops better. It has enough acceleration to get it going. It may not quite have the top end of the Hondas, but we're not going to tracks that have a lot of top end here anymore. It's about turning, being on the edge of the tire and being able to drive off of the corners they're going into because I can't think of maybe Phillip Island would be the exception. I would think Malaysia would be maybe an exception. Uh, Thailand has a long straight, but it's a sharp turn into it. So that initial punch off is going to be important. It's a monumental task for faji These, these two DNFs, If you know, I think you could probably say faji may have won Magello without the mistake. Mm. So you could give him 25, right. And you could probably say he'd have been in the pack somewhere on this one. So those hurt Sasaki. Oh, we forgot that I even mentioned Azumi Sasaki at all, because he wasn't <laughs> in the race because he had a broken collarbone. Well, what we thought was two broken collarbones because he had a terrible crash with one Masia, where Masia actually hit him, I think. And then it wasn't this collar. It was ready to determine that it was only a collarbone that was broke, but it was a compound fracture of that collarbone. And it wasn't the collarbone that kept him out. It was the fact that he had a concussion. So, again, we're at least got some consistency. If we have a concussion, <laughs> well, you are well, sitting out, right? I mean, well, we're hold getting that, there. I, yeah, thought. <laughs> I know. Just when, I, just when you think there's going to be some bit of consistency among anything, or at least we're getting it medically. No, we're kind of not. But, anyway, uh, to finish out the top ten in points, after Sasaki in six, it was Mino Suzuki, and then Tatai. And, finally, Ricardo Rossi. So, that ends us. With Moto
1: 3. On to Moto 2, then? Yeah, I must just apologize. If anybody can hear strange noises picking up on my microphone, my dog's under my desk and she's snoring. So it's not my stomach growling or anything worse than that. Just, just want to make uh, full disclosure. <laughs> in Moto 2, in the first session, we had
0: Vieti, Arbolino, Cambobier, Aldegar, Chantra, and Navarro. That's a pretty stacked list. I mean, We've said it many times in MotoGP that a lot of times that first qualifying session could be a second qualifying session. We're starting to see that in Moto2, which is refreshing because Moto2 usually is sort of like the forgotten kind of class and nothing much is there. And it's really kind of weird how it sits, but we had a pretty good there. So it was uh, Lopez, Vietti, Arbolino, Navarro that going through of interest that Cam uh, was very quick in the first sector. So Cam Bobier. He would set a red helmet in the first sector, but he would lose three tenths in the second sector and a further, further tenth in the third sector, which I thought, wow, I don't know what's going on here with Cam, but it just something wasn't working for him here, but he was super fast through that first
1: sector. So not sure what was happening there, but. Just consistency again, isn't it? It Just, you know, a rock up at one race and he's, kind of leading almost looking like he could win and then it'll just vanish again. It's just very perplexing, really. Mm-hmm. Most yeah, of we'll, all for him, I'm sure. And the well, team. We'll, we'll come on to that consistency thing with American
0: riders. <laughs> uh, indeed we will. Yes. Let's talk about that second qualifying session. Uh, halfway through it was Kenneth Dixon, Roberts, those Boben Schneider and uh, Marcel Schrader of interest Mr. Acosta was 18th. so the guy who wins becomes the youngest ever winner of a minor intermediate class race, simply can't seem to get it going though he was so fast in Fp3. like whoa, okay, it got hot, heat of the day, okay, maybe he couldn't get something to go there. but at the very end, Vietti skated by to get out to be to get pulled. Now Vietti came through, from the first qualifying session and somehow got faster and faster as he went into the second qualifying session. I'm not sure how that really works, especially when it was as hot as it was, because again, moto two qualifies after moto GP. So it is the absolute hottest part of the day. I think track to tem- track or it was like 91 degree air temperature, which I think is like 35 or 36 C Mid, um, yeah, yeah. And then the track itself was like 160 some degrees. I think it was like, what, 115, 120, 125, 130 Celsius or something of that effect. So it was super hot, which you'd expect it to be just slippery and slimy. But Vietti would go on to claim a pole. Canette would be second. Roberts would be third on the front row. Man, some consistency out of Joe Roberts. It was looking good. We, we, we've had Portimao with a win. Had a couple of race there. We kind of dropped off that race prior. Magello was great. He had a great podium there. It was looking good. Dixon, for all of you Brit fans, I, I'm a Dixon fan too. He was there in fourth. Loved that arenas uh, there as well so the gas gas boys having a good time in moto three and having a good time in moto two so things yeah. looking up with the fruit of gas gas boys then Lowe's there in sixth. bob schneider seventh uh augusto fernandez in eighth and then marcel Schroder and agurif rounding out your top 10 i agree not looking that sharp sharp either so we have to move to race day and things that would happen with the with ra- within the race and see there um, the, my question was, could Acosta go back to the front because we were definitely racing in cooler conditions than what we qualified in. So, if they had a bike setup that worked in a cooler, in that cooler temperature with a cooler track temperature, because we had a partly cloudy day, we had a big shade over the main straightaway going on. I thought, well, maybe Acosta will ride up because he, you know, Acosta would start like from 12th, I think, in the in the in the, in the race. But Dixon jumped out to a whole shot, followed by Roberts and Vietti. Canet was right there. Then um, Arenus and Agura. Uh, we had Roberts go to the lead. He was followed by Canet there. Dixon was there. Um, Agura was there. Acosta was twelfth at this point. It's like you know, a couple of laps into the race, so there was not much going on with Acosta. But I thought, okay, maybe he's going to just settle in, put a charge in. We've seen what his teammate can do as the fuel load kind of comes off. The bike comes good. They get there um salvadori was down at turn 13 then Cambodia was down at turn 14 arbolino got a long lap penalty that was for track limits i believe so he had burned up his three get out of jail free cards and had to go to the long lap penalty which in this track seemed like the long lap penalty was kind of correct because it did you are going farther I, some tracks i think the long lap penalty is long enough some places i think it's sh- too short i you know mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to you know, you got to take that into account with this as well. There was the great battle between agura uh, Vietti. That was down a few places. So, you know, we're kind of focusing on that. Roberts was one and a half seconds uh, into the lead with 15 laps to go, followed by Canet and Dixon and Aranis, then Vietti and Agura, Acosta still 12th, not putting anything together as things go along, which is very disconcerting to me. Any thoughts on to why he... Was just kind of stuck in that position, Jim. I have no idea because towards the end it kind of turns around and comes good. Ate it by a few things that will happen in between,
1: mm. but it
0: seemed like it took such a long time for him to get going again, as if he lost the feel of the bike so bad in qualifying that he had no way to push, and only through riding more, riding more and more and more on that bike the way that it was, was he able to understand what it needed, and then he, he was able to ride i don't want to say ride around the problem but understand where he was and what he needed to do to actually make the bike more competitive again you have to look i i you sometimes with aki aki Ayo, and you look at him during these races when when acosta's having a problem he has a, such a cheshire cat grin sometimes because you, you just know this kid's going to come good and it seems like everybody sorry for the aside here people but Everybody after that first win in Magello, everybody the next week was saying, "Costa's gonna win this championship. Costa's gonna win the championship. Costa's gonna win." Like, oh great, let's just put a whole bunch of pressure on this kid again, <laughs> like you did in Moto Three, because he was running away with the championship. And as soon as you, everybody started talking about he was running away. What happened? He started to have problems. Couldn't find the field. Couldn't get there. But it appears that Io, you're not going to give up on this kid. The, the talent is immense, right? And let's be honest, Martin Marquez, when he got on a Moto2 bike, did not set the world on fire until his second year in the class. Mm. He won a couple races here and there, and he was nowhere in some other races. So this has that same kind of feel
1: to me. I wondered if, you know, it was so hot and so greasy out there, and you have to remember, we all have to remember, that this will be Acosta's first time probably at that track on this bike in what were very extreme heat conditions. So maybe it just, as you say, Jim, it just took him laps to get used to those conditions. And as we'll come on to in a minute, with a little bit of good fortune, perhaps, but he pulled off one of those things that we saw several times last year in Moto3, where suddenly he's like 12th. And then next minute, he's kind of up the front, well, not at the front, but scored some pretty decent points in the end. So, Which we didn't really get to see quite how that transpired, which was a shame, but... Yeah, I just wondered if you had any particular thoughts, but I just think it's just familiarity. And next year will be the year where he probably, well, he will be expected to by, dominate <laughs> by Aki Ayo and, and lots of other people to do a much more kind of consistent at the front job.
0: I completely agree with you on that. This is where we get to heartbreak.
1: Yeah, I really felt for you. Uh, yeah,
0: so uh, I think uh, we're at the point where Dixon has contact with Canette and they kind of bangs his way through the second. That was becoming a little ding dong battle there because that battle was two and a half seconds behind one Joe Roberts. Yeah, I had the I had the national anthem all warmed up, ready to go <laughs> because I'm like, there's nobody going to touch him, but except for the one thing, you got to do to win a race is finish, and he couldn't. Turn five front end. It wasn't a front end tuck. It looked like the back had got away from him. Yeah, from the view I we see, I, I'm not on it, but from onboard and everything else, it's not like the front end went because usually you see that particular jolt of the handlebar mm. you you get where it finally it tucks underneath that you try to pull it back and then you 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 hear the gravel you hear the noise you hear the scrapes this was over on the side everything seemed good and it was almost like at the application of power that the back end just went and just rolled out from underneath of him i was heartbroken i'm like just when i thought roberts had turned a corner and this whole idea of consistency because Again, I will blame the commentators for this one because they started talking about how Joe Roberts has become <laughs> this guy who's real close to the front of the championship. And you got me thinking 1990, John Kaczynski, intermediate class champion. And I'm just like off on a stars and stripes, wave the flag thing here. And next thing I know, I come back and – Yeah, pow, gravel man.
1: noise.
0: Gravel yeah. noise. Like, oh, oh, boy. Anyway, you know, I, I hope Joe does not get down on himself for this one because it could have happened to anybody. It was, it was hot. It was greasy it was definitely not, I don't think that's normal temperatures for Barcelona at that time of the year.
1: No, and let's be honest, uh, and I don't wish to be disparaging towards Joe Roberts for one second, but this is not a guy in the last few seasons who spent a lot of time with that kind of a gap out front. And although the guys behind were dicing a bit and that was increasing his lead, he was still setting a pretty ferocious pace out front. And You know, you can't blame the guy for pushing because you get into the rhythm, don't you? And it's such tiny margins. But yeah, it did occur to me perhaps that, you know, without that reference of other people around you, you're just doing your own thing. And he was going, I I was going to say, he's going faster and faster. I don't know if lap times would reflect that, but he was certainly, his gap was increasing, wasn't it? Um, For various reasons. And then suddenly it all goes wrong. So heartbreaking for him, really. But as you say, let's hope he'll take, he and the team, We'll take the positives of that performance and keep going. Because he is still right up there in the championship. But that was a big, big blow to his championship, no doubt. Uh, so after I collected myself and wiped my tears off of my notes, <laughs> we
0: re- I realized that Agur was going backwards because he fell to eighth. Like, Agur couldn't put anything together at this one. It's like, well, here's your chance, right? You know, he couldn't get anywhere. Vietti, by this time, had gone to the lead with a really nice move past Vietti at turn 10. I-, I must admit that was very sweet. Uh, just on the brakes up the inside, gently push him out. Got my line. There we go. With five to go, Kennett went back to the front in front of Vietti. It was going to be between those two. Dixon had fallen backwards a smidge um, with Fernandez coming to tour the front and with Schroeder. And Uranus, uh Lowe's was there. And then Acosta, suddenly with five to go, shows up in like the top six. Like, again, this is our rant about TV. Like, where was that at? Why wasn't, why didn't, if this guy, obviously Acosta was coming. And yet no one had a camera on, you know, we could have gone picture in picture, whatever, but nobody was talking about the fact that he was, he was getting somewhere. Then three to go lows down to turn 12. That's what four races on the six races in the trot. Having not scored a point, you're really starting to feel for Sam. I am then, uh, Aranis retired. Vietti goes by Canada at 10, like a carbon copy of what we saw earlier in the race again. And then finally we get, we have Canet going by at turn one and he was going to have to ride the ride of his life because you knew what was going to happen. It was going to be turn 10 again. Kenneth even actually was like all the way to what would have been riders left to protect the inside, to keep uh, Vietti from going there. But Yeti winds up going by at turn 10 anyway, which I'm like, you know, I get where Canet was going. He was protecting, but I thought he protected too much, which allowed Vietti to kind of cruise in wherever he wanted. You, if you're that tight, your radius in that corner is much tighter. Where Vietti was on the larger radius on the outside to make the sweep around, take the lead, and Vietti would go on to win. So, what a what a weekend for Vietti from a Q one starting point to Q two pole to a race win, having not really led much at all. Mm. And then, yeah. Kinet, you know, and then Canette again, we'll, we have no idea what the bow tie is for, but here we are at some point. We're going to know Augusto Fernandez showing that he, he can make things happen late in the race. Dixon stayed on to get points. I thought that was at least a good thing for him, you know, get some time there. Schrader S- fifth. Sorry, Rich, is something there about Dixon. Do you want to say? Well, just,
1: just to say that it was a shame that he didn't make it onto the podium because he rode a good race, but then so did the other guys around him. But the second strong finish for Jake Dixon, and it's exactly the tonic that he needs, is a few solid sort of front-end finishes because we've seen him chuck it down the road a bit too much this year, and he'll be the first to say that and to be beating Well, he does beat himself up about it. I mean, he really takes it, takes it bad when he doesn't put in a good performance, as, as they all do. So I, I just, going into the last lap, a note that I wrote as I was watching the race was, are all the four of these guys at the front going to finish? Because you just had the feeling that something might go off. Yeah, something colossal was going to happen. Canet mugged Vietti and Fernandez mugged Dixon, but they all made it round. And, you know, although it was disappointing for Dixon from a partisan British point of view uh, to miss the podium, nevertheless, another great strong finish for him. And that will just help to build his confidence because, you know, you've got you to finish... In all of these classes nowadays because they're so close, but Moto2 is, you know, a surprisingly good championship this year, much better than we've seen it for many, many seasons, um, which is great. So, yeah, um, please for Jake on that one. So then
0: uh, Schroeder was fifth. And then it was like a five-second gap to the Acosta-Agura battle with Acosta getting out on top. Then Lopez, Gonzalez, Arbolina, Delaporta, Porta, Chantra, Bobin Schneider, Navarro, and Aldiger Uh getting the final point there. That then means we got to look at the riders championship in this one. And that puts Vietti on top on 133 points. That leaves him 16 points behind. Yep. Sounds familiar. There's 16 points in moto three. There's 16 points in moto two of a girl who's on 117. You give a a win here and there. It's going to be interesting. Canette is third on 109. Augusta Fernandez is there on 96. Arbulino's is on 89. Roberts really hurt himself here. If he had got 25 points, he'd he been on 111, and so he'd been right there in third. But, uh, you know, if some butts were candy and nuts, everybody would have a very Merry Christmas. And consistency wins races. <laughs> consistency yeah. also wins championships. He just wasn't there. Schroder, Chancha Navarro, and Acosta ran out the top 10 in points.
1: That is Moto2. Championship ride from Vietti, and he had his elbows out, which is not something that we see or have seen from him a great deal through both Moto3 and certainly through Moto2. So, yeah, um, impressive ride from Vietti. And I I should add as well, I don't think I have this wrong, but he was not particularly far at the timesheets through the free practice sessions either. So it was a surprise, and obviously having to go through Q1 was very much a reflection of the fact that he hadn't had a, a stellar weekend up until that point. In terms of single lap pace, I mean, you never know if these guys are working more on their race setup. I suppose. Um, maybe he was, and maybe that's what shone through on Sunday. But it was a great ride by him. And I just wanted to, just before we go into MotoGP, massive shout out to Lopez, who has mm-hmm. come in, taken over from Fanati on the uh, speed up chassis, and is very much at the moment, at least, showing up Firmin Aldegar really who's had a lot of bad luck this season we must say in fairness to him but is kind of the seen as the big next thing coming through Moto2 and Lopez has rocked up and um is is really doing a unbelievably good job and given that given that I've forgotten the name of the uh, Is it Boscuscu, is that the name of the team manager? It is actually his team, isn't it? It is the Boscuscu, the old speed-up, whatever whatever you want to call it. Given that he booted Fanati out because he was showing so poorly against Aldegar, it's a little bit embarrassing now for Ardegaard, I suppose, that his ex-teammate from European Moto2 last year, because they were in the same team last year in the European Championship, has has turned up and is, um, so far, doing a... showing very well. I wouldn't say doing... Well, no, he's doing a better job. I mean, you know, look at the results. So we'll, we'll see. Well, let's be
0: honest here. I don't think it would take a whole lot to shade Roman, Romano Fanati.
1: No, but he's beating Aldiger. That's the point. And Aldiger was... Well, you know, that's what I'm
0: saying. For Aldiger to beat Romano didn't take a whole lot, right? True. In my, true. Mind, in my mind, anyway. Okay. So you got to beat your teammate. But then again, sometimes when you are given this opportunity and you get, I don't want to say plucked from obscurity, but... You get pulled into the to, to the big team. There's a lot of drive and determination to show that you could do it. And sometimes that's the fuel you need, right? I, yeah. I always live by the idea that failure is
1: the fuel of success. Yeah, yeah. You, did you hear about the little um, gentleman's bet that Lopez and Aldergaard had? We getting? were talking
0: about haircuts. I didn't yeah. quite get what was really <laughs> going on about that one. That was a little weird.
1: So Aldergaard has this kind of uh, mullet, um, which is kind of like the long long hair at the back and short short on the top whereas um not that i've seen lopez but obviously he has some kind of a heavy fringe type thing going on so whichever one beat the other in barcelona has to adopt that (laughs) that that hairdo at the next race so stand by for some shocking hairstyles okay coming up
0: oh should we move on to moto gp and try to bring this one home because there's a lot to talk about in moto gp
1: yeah
0: all right well let's try to condense this as down as Quickly as we can. In the first qualifying session, we had Vinales, Bastianini, Mir, Bender, Olivera, Nakagami, and Bezeki. Again, that should have been like maybe a Q1 session. Very <laughs> interesting. Vinales and, and Nakagami would go through. Uh, it was a crazy session. Um, with a, with a minute to go, Olivera, Olivera was number one. He would wind up sixth. That was just how and people just kept coming. And you put your best lap down and that's your final lap. And then it takes the number one position and ding, 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 everybody just knocked you off. I was like, wow, what do you, know? you don't, you don't see many sessions of that nature. When we go out into moto to GP qualifying number two on the first run, it was Quatraro, then Yaya, Aleish, Martin, Renz, and Zarco. Aleish had been quick all weekend. You kind of thought he was going to be the man. He was going to take the pole. You, you knew, Quattro has to ride almost Marc Marquez like and do stuff that only he can do on a Yamaha to at least get himself to the front row. If any of the Ducatis were to get ahead of him, it was pretty much going to be game over for Quattro. He knows that going in and he rides like a man who is absolutely desperate and somehow he can keep it just inside the limits. It is really fascinating to watch. Mm. It just doesn't, it doesn't crash, does he? No, he does not. Just which just does is, not crash. Which is interesting. Now, I don't know if it's the way the Yamaha is. Is it just that unforgiving? Is it just that Quattro can just do that? Not too sure where it is. But again, we marveled at what Marquez could do as far as saving a crash. Now we're kind of marveling at how Quattro doesn't crash because mm. they both seem to be near out of control all the time, at least to us lay people here as we you know, look at it. it was, so eventually it would wind up with the fact that Alasius Berger would take the pole position in front of his at-home crowd. Benyana would be there in second. Quattro would be in third. That gave him that front row, that precious front row start. Zarco came out of nowhere at the very end to snag a fourth on there. D.G. Antonio with another really good ride in qualifying. Um, again, this is one of those weird things where it's like, you wouldn't have thought D.G. Antonio would be that good on the, on the MotoGP bike. He was not that – he had his flashes of brilliance, right, Here Mm -hmm. and there in the Moto2 class, sort of like one Quattroro kind of had a flash of brilliance here and there and winds up in a team. And now, look, you know, he's world champion. So maybe the same thing happens to DG Antonio. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Then there was Martin, Alex Renz, Vinales, uh, Luca Marini, Polisparo, terrible qualifying for the Honda rider. Miller, Miller and Nakagami were there as well. Miller having a terrible time in qualifying as well. Yeah that would take us on them to, to the race. And it was always going to be about the start. And, and that was, you know, what we wanted to see was what was going to happen at the start. Alish kind of had a whole shot. Quattro was out there in second. Then Yaya was out to the outside of Quattro. And then to put it mildly, all hell breaks loose. It was one of the most violent and nasty crashes at a start that I can think of since now hit the back end of another bike. I can't remember what year, but that flipped that Ducati he was on, and it ripped the entire front end off and destroyed a bike, and just you know, mass chaos at the start it happened there. The chaos was created by Benya. Was cre- was, a, was a, the chaos involved? I should say, Benya, Rins, and Nakagami. All of them crashed at the first turn. Now, what happened was that Nakagami got the braking wrong. He went in really deep, couldn't get the bike stopped, folded the front end. This then caused him to slide into Benyaya. He nipped the back of Benyaya's bike and then went flying into Alex Renz. Now Renz was spit off the top and had flown through the air and landed square flat on his back. And there was a lot of attention paid to what had happened to Alex Rins because it was a brutal hit that Alex took. He flew what do you think rich
1: 10 meters
0: or something it was a long long distance he was flying landed flat on his back i he was very slow to get up i thought he had maybe injured his hip or pelvis areas something there the way he had where he had landed because i know the airbags and the suits are sort of like for collarbones and stabilizing your head and protecting you know the vital organs that you have in your chest i'm not too sure that i don't think there's any airbag support there for like you know the nether regions so to speak Hmm. so when you looked at it in review in detail of it you the first thing you know you're you're captivated by how high and how far Renz goes in the air but I immediately noticed Nakagami Nakagami falls off and his face hits the rear tire of Benyaya's bike it snaps his head backwards and rips the visor off of his helmet and that moment because at the time Nakagami had not gotten back up, I thought, oh my gosh, his neck could maybe be broken. The, it, it is violent. When you see the one angle, it is a violent, violent whip of his head. And then, you know, he tumbles like a rag doll, which I, everyone would expect. Luckily, he was able to get up under his own power. I think Ben Yaya and, uh, helped Rinz to get up. Mm. We've learned since that Rinz has... A fractured left wrist. Terrible, terrible shame there. has looked f- fairly good on the Suzuki, I would say, this year. And basically, he, you know, he's trying to put himself in the window for a ride. Uh, you know, I think we all know Mir's going to, going to Honda because Paul Sparger is not going to be there. He's already said he's talking to other teams. Yeah. So terrible, brat, terrible luck there. And then Nakagami was in the hospital. He had tweeted out that, you know, he was okay. It wasn't, you know, a few cuts, bruises, scrapes. But everything's okay, he did admit that it was his fault going in there. Now, this is where the controversy starts to really ramp up. Um, do you want to take on the controversy part of it, Rich, or do you
1: want me to kind of carry it here? I'll, I'll give it a shot, go for it. <laughs> so, the main well, I, th- I think you fall into one of two camps race direction say it's a race, incident, instant, nothing to see here, move on, no further action required. A lot of people, my initial thought on watching it, and just as a gut reaction, was that Nakagami, who we must remember started 12th, went steam, steaming in. Okay, first lap, you're going to make up positions you know, on the first couple of corners, fair enough. But he does have a bit of a track record of going, oh, I shouldn't use the term banzai, I suppose, because I don't want people to misconstrue what I'm saying. But you know, going all frantic. out... Bit frantic, Over-exuberant, bit des- maybe. Yeah, bit bit des- desperate, perhaps. You know, and unless remember, I mean, very much riding for his job in MotoGP at the moment. Goes piling into the first turn, but takes a very strong kind of movement from uh, right to left as part of that move. Almost takes polar Bargro's brake lever or front tire on the way across. Certain angles made it look as if they'd actually touched. I think pole probably twitched as Nakagami came across his bow. And then just far too much front brake, loses the front, and drops it. And as you say, his bike then hits Rins, causing him to go flying off into the gravel trap. And as you say, Jim, a hideous uh, connection helmet to rear tyre on Banyar's bike, which takes Banyar out, very very lucky well as you say that he didn't end up with a serious neck injury or worse and actually equally given that as part of that collision his visor was ripped off the helmet very lucky that he didn't end up kind of blinded going through the gravel track with gravel piling into his open crash helmet because all sorts of nasty things can happen in that scenario as well I saw a picture of him today from his bedside and he's got quite a lot of facial bruising which is presumably from gravel coming in and striking him at that sort of speed so I mean, I don't know. We've seen, I think the reference point, again, has to be, uh, uh, again, I was going to use a, a term which I shouldn't use, I suppose, in relation to Japanese rider, but let's say over very, very much over-exuberant uh, antics early in a race. And I'm thinking, just as a touch point, as an example, in terms of consistency, Sam Lowe's at the Red Bull Ring last year, can't remember if it was on the first lap, certainly was in the early part of the race, went by his own admission, steaming into turn. So the Red Bull ring, they come through the first uphill turn, right, go down the long, long straight, although that's gone for this year, but down the long, long straight. And then they got that very tight right-hander at the bottom where that enormous crash with Morbidelli and Rossi and whatnot happened. So Sam went into that in the first race at the Red Bull ring last year, went flying in there, took several riders out, got, uh, start from the pit lane in the following week's back-to-back race. Nakagami goes steaming in, first lap, first corner, takes several bikes out. Race Direction say it's just a racing incident. There was no evidence of anything that he did wrong. So, again, it's just a total lack of consistency in terms of what Race Direction is saying. And what's interesting this time, though, is Alex Rins has stuck his head above the parapet and said, Race Direction's not fit for purpose. That's basically what he has said. Aiming his comments very squarely at Freddie Spencer, it must be said, but also the other couple of stewards as well. And seemingly getting quite a lot of support from other riders in that viewpoint, in terms of the fact that race direction are very quick to hand out penalties in Moto3 in particular, and to some extent in Moto2. Again, Sam Lowe's reference just as one Uh, example of that last year and seemed very loath to take any action against any wrongdoing in MotoGP and this did look we didn't mean to do it obviously obviously Nakagama didn't mean to do that and could have been seriously hurt as a result of it and he's admitted that he made a, a big mistake but I just don't understand and I'm interested to know what the listeners think on this point but I just don't understand how Race direction don't think that that was a foolhardy move that early in the race, so that's kind of the main controversy in terms of race direction in the race that we're talking about.
0: Great points, all of that. Uh, I find it interesting that you know Rins just took his head up and said, "Hey, this is this this has got to stop." And he did not have kind words for Freddie Spencer. Um, okay, you know I got gotcha. you. I'm not going to justify Race Directions' decision here. There's a couple of things about it, though, that I would like to to discuss. Chief among them is when I first saw it, I went with racing incident, and partially because we're Nakagami. You, you, I guess I can put it through the. Sorry, let me start over again. Try to collect my thoughts and be sure that my mouth and my mind are going together here. When you start a race from the grid, you never actually practice a breaking point for that first turn at that speed because you are used to going into that first turn at maximum velocity as opposed to going into something somewhere less. So let's say if they're doing two hundred, touching 200, hitting the brakes, going in there, you're not going to be doing 200 from the start line there. You might be doing 150. You might be doing 160, something close to that. Okay, that changes your break point or where you're going to go because that's the first thing. Second thing in there is that you have carbon fiber brakes, which need to be at a certain temperature to to gain heat and work properly. If they're not hot enough and if you sat there for a long time, that's what the lights tend tend to be fairly quick when they go is they don't want to lose the heat in the brakes. And if Nakagami maybe potentially didn't have enough heat or missed it a little bit there about and you go for that first time to hit it, you don't have the brakes that you're expecting, then your instant reflexes pump again. And now, suddenly, boom, they come on and they lock. And what also could have happened, because it happens not nearly as much now, but again, that little incident with Paul Sparger, that's a big head shake that Nakagami has as he comes by there. If that knocks the pistons back off the rotors on the brake pads, that first pump he's going to hit is not there. He's like, oh crap. And he's going to double pump it. And now he's going to wind up crashing. I don't think that you can, as race direction, you can't judge someone's incident that they have at the time based on their history. I think it's unfair because everyone should be allowed that ability to change. However, if you've shown a consistent streak of doing the same stupid thing, I give you Auntie weaving all over the place as an example – then you need to take into account what that is. That's the fine line of judgment. That's human nature. That's judging in general, right? Whether it's Olympic sport or whatever, right? You, you have three judges that have a different way of seeing what's going on. Same thing happening here. But again, this is a, it's a risky business. We all accept that, that there. And I really don't know what they could have done too. Now they could make him start from pit lane. As, as a choice right they could have instituted any other kind of penalty that they wanted to if they felt it was severe now then that begs the question here like well, what is severe is it if only three bikes go down that's okay but for, if you put a fourth bike on the ground does that take that's a penalty using your Lowe's example as you know lows didn't take out three bikes i think it was four or five riders were down in that melee so is it the number of riders you're knocking down I don't know. Again, this is the, this is the consistency thing about it. I, I just want to put out there kind of what I'm thinking as a writer and what Nakagami's going through. And again, I really was on the, on the fence with that call of writing of just a racing incident because of when you look back and you see what he did to pole, and then you see what he did there, you kind of got to look at it together as a sequence. And then that changes my mind a little bit, but I don't know if it was worthy of a penalty. You know, did the, pun- did, did the punishment fit the crime? Yeah, he took the front end of a pretty bad impact. But again, what happens to you when you fall and any injury you may receive does not dictate what race direction should say about what you do.
1: I, I don't want to be
0: race direction. I don't want to be that person who has to make those decisions. I like to sit here and complain about race direction because it's fun. But, but it, 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 it's one of these things where there's got to be consistency and there's got to be a line drawn And there has to be something done. If you're willing to sit down and discuss with Moto 3 writers, hey, you can't do this, i.e. you can't roll off between 13 and 14 to juggle the pack for your draft, then you got to be willing to sit down with with men. Uh, Let's be fair. Let's call them men. you got to be fair enough that you're going to sit down with men and have a manly discussion with them and say, look, this kind of crap that you're doing isn't acceptable. There's a line, and you guys are getting damn close to that line. And you keep this crap up, you are going to be set. You know it's kind of like, I hate to use different sport analogies, but the only way I can get view is this one in hockey. If a, if a big contracted player isn't playing very well, the coach really doesn't have any real means of being able to shock them into doing something. He has two, he can scratch them and put them on the, put them, you know, on the bench for the next game and they're not playing. That's a sends a big signal from your coach, right? I think the same thing for race direction. If you put a star, and tell him you can't race next weekend because you got to get your your crap together. Then that's that's w- what you got to do. You know the other thing is you know is you, you bench him and you take playing time. Well, what's the rider going to respond to? You take in race time away from him. And more to your point, I think you've had this discussion before, Rich. Is like if you are penalized, put somebody else on the bike to take your place to make it doubly impactfully hurt. Rant over from me. Sorry,
1: I'm not necessarily. Uh, but my opinion is not that I think. Nakagami definitely deserves some great big penalty for what happened in that individual thing although I do think he was out of control particularly because he came so sweeping across from right to left and he kind of just ran himself out of room and the other 22, 23 riders on the grid didn't do that so you know he was the one at fault and he did cause that collision to happen but I think the main beef and certainly from what the riders I think are starting to where they're coming from is that there's is this whole issue around consistency so again let's take another example and i think i'm in saying this and i'm sure people will correct me if i'm wrong but if we look back to kota in the moto two race at the back end of the back straight on lap one sonki chantra steamed in and skittled what six bikes i think on that occasion and i don't believe he received any sanction for that at all i mean obviously he was out in that race but he didn't have a pit lane start, a, a, a grid place demotion. So, you know, if I was Sam Lowes, I'd feel a bit sore about that because arguably what Chandra did had more of an effect in that race than what Sam Lowes did in Austria last year. So, they just race direction seemed to be all at sea. Added to which, and again, listening to a couple of other podcasts with people that are in the paddock, race direction give no explanation. As to why they've made the decision or what any decision they have made is based on they literally will not talk to people about it so this is all kind of coming to a head and even prior to sunday's race and this issue particular issue that we're talking about talk has started to gather up although of course go figure the riders can't quite figure it out amongst themselves which is a bit of a sad uh, i suppose indictment of them but nevertheless there is talk starting to brew about a riders group Union, let's call it, be informed a bit like you, in Formula One, you have the GPDA. So that the riders can start hopefully start to present a bit of a more of a united front to demand certain changes, not necessarily to individuals or personnel, although that can be a result. But just to say, look, the governance and the overall consistency of the rules, and and indeed perhaps some of the rules themselves, you know, need to be looked at. And at a certain stage, I mean, Dawner is not responsible they basically kind of rent the championship from the FIM you know it's the FIM who own and run the sport certainly in terms of race direction at least so this is kind of building up to a bit of a head and I should also mention that in Mugello Rins and Nakagami came together Rins came off second best on that occasion as well and felt very aggrieved that Nakagami's behaviour on that one as well. You can watch a replay of the incident on the Dorna website. I think everybody can pick that one up for free if you don't subscribe. And again, it was two bikes into one doesn't fit. And Nakagami was very tough in his positioning and action on the bike. So again, I'm not making any judgments myself, but two races in a row, Alex Rins hit the deck as a result of coming together with um, Nakagami. So uh, my personal view for what it's worth is that I think, you know, Taken Akagami is under a hell of a lot of pressure in that team. You know, he's got Ayagura champion at his race seat for next year. And, you know, we've seen him be a bit kind of, yeah, a bit too enthusiastic on lap one on many occasions in the past. If you remember Aragon a couple of years ago when he hit, was on pole, chucked it up the road halfway around the lap, just doesn't seem to be able to temper that aggression with, whatever the word is for, you know, finishing the race and to take two or three bikes out on the first turn is not, you know, not very good. And I think the riders feel aggrieved that he's off scot-free. So I don't know, interested to know what people think about this one because this one will run and run for a little bit. I mean, I don't know if Nakagami will be back at the next race. Alex Rins is obviously somewhat in doubt with a wrist injury like that. So, and that's, as you say, Jim, it's bad for him because he's trying to secure a ride somewhere else. Yeah, I think that pretty much, Gets us through all the
0: stewarding issues and whatnot. Again, this will run on forever, guys. We want your opinion on this one. Motopod at motopodcast.com. Email us. Let's try to wrap this up here. Let's be frank about this. With Yaya out, it was Quattraro's race to lose. And since Quattraro was extremely fast through five, six, seven, eight, nine, there was no way anybody was really going to catch him because he just kept on running metronomic Lorenzo type laps with that Yamaha. And nobody could touch him. So Quattraro romps off to the victory. Let's just put that out there.
1: I don't think we should underestimate what a good ride it was, Jimmy. I mean, he was. Oh, it was. (laughs) The question: Did you see the lap chart they threw
0: up? He varied by about a tenth and a half for
1: 24 laps in the heat in those conditions yeah it was crazy i mean i mean this year he could have done with his leathers coming undone for a bit of airflow and a bit of air relief but luckily that didn't happen this year not the race direction did anything about that last year either but
0: you had to bring race gate or zipper gate up didn't you oh boy yeah anyway it's just not i know again stewarding should be consistent should be fair and consistent and that is all you ever want Anyway, enough said off the box the race then became what's who, who's going to fill out the podium positions, right? It was it was a race that was between Aspargo, Martin, and Zarco. That's who, who who was there. This pretty much by with twelve laps to go, Quattraro was gone. I think Bastianini went down at turn five on like lap seven or it was seventeen to go. Um, D G. Antonio went down at turn thirteen at the same time. Uh, it's a good race in the back. Quattraro is gone again. Uh, nine to go. Martin got gets by Alash, a closing in on Alash. Well, then Alash picks his pace up with like five to go, and it's in Alash is trying to get by Alash gets by Martin with four to go, and then we get to. Well, I don't know how to be polite about this one. A major, uh, is, is cock up a word that you use in England there sometimes, Rich? I can't remember if I've heard that one.
1: A much more polite version
0: of what I wrote on my notes. Oh, okay. Well, So the last lap, Alashe second. And we initially think that his bike has ran into a problem. Now, I thought potentially maybe it might have ran out of gas. That was not the case, as Alesh then decided to celebrate a second place on the podium, only to realize after Mir and uh, Martin and Zarko went flying by at race speed that the race was not over. Oops. Now, what can you say? I, okay. I don't know. Now, maybe somebody screwed up his lapboard. Don't know. Don't have an answer. If they didn't, and it was all him, shame on you. Um, There's always that thing of you race to the end again. And, and, you know, I mean, if you should be looking for a flag regardless when you go by, because you kind of you're looking for your lap board. You should be looking for a flag there as well, because, you know, you're you've got to be winding down to some extent. They were talking about they couldn't remember the last time a racer had done this. Well, I can I know when do you know when? curiosity i remember see if you remember the same thing i remember it wasn't a moto
1: gp i'm trying yes, to think it of was. guys yes oh, it really? was yes it uh, was go on I, I can't think of a moto gp one i can remember a moto two one i believe it's 2006 kenny roberts jr oh
0: portugal portugal that's true yeah. yeah he thought it was he thought they were done yeah and he had thought he had won but He didn't in 2005 or 2006. I can't remember which way. I think it's six. That was because Hayden was down or whatever. Yeah. And and Rossi
1: finishing second kind of wound up with Nikki getting the points that he needed for the champ. Yeah. Anyway.
0: So I I couldn't believe those guys didn't remember that one because that one flashed into my mind right then. Yeah. I feel so, so horrible for Leish. He didn't mean to do it. Right. This is not a malicious thing. He was, it's the jubilation of racing. This is the sport, right? This is sort of why you turn in for sport. Right. I think we've seen it with, with, with football players, right? There's that final goal in the world cup and the goalies devastated Right. It's, it's that thing, right? The same thing happened here. And it's, you know, again, the team, did not throw him under the bus whatsoever. They were all congratulatory. They Quite all upset. wanted to hug him. They wanted to tell him it was all okay. Everything would be fine. Which is the shows that they have a love for Alicia because they know Aleish has done the donkey work to make that bike work and to get to where they are. He can be forgiven for a small indiscretion. Please don't ever do it again <laughs> is kind of the polite way of saying don't do it again. Because we because now my fear is that having done this, that Quattroiro cannot be caught unless Quattroiro decides to go off the rails in this championship. I think it is definitely now Quattroiro's championship to lose having won this race. Granted, you know, things are different if Ben Yai is in there, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing that happened to Ben Yai. can happen to Quattroiro. You know, there's tracks where he's going to get caught up behind the Ducatis, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different things that can happen, but that is those points he lost because that dropped lace from a second to a fifth. That is a lot of points to lose because if you finish in if you finish in fifth, you get 11 points. If you finish in second, you get 20 points. That's nine points. Those nine points may I hope they don't come back to haunt him. Mm. But if he loses this championship to the anything, nine points or under, we are all going to look right back at this one and go, oh, boy. I guess we should say who actually finished where then after all that. Quattro, again, out front one. Jorge Martin then was able to get second because he definitely was not able to keep the pace of the leash there at the end. So it was definitely going to be Martin in third. Zarko gifted a podium of third place because he would had nothing for the two boys in front of him. And then one Mir would finish fourth, which is a fantastic ride by Mir and the Suzuki. If you want to put yourself in the window, IE sign the contract that Honda is going to slide across your table. That was the, that was the audition of, Hey, I now have a pen and i very much would like to sign, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, You know, uh, to continue down, Aleish was fifth. Then Luca Marini with a strong ride. You know he was good in Magello, good in Barcelona, an uptick for the Mooney team. I think they're riding on a wave of high. Then Vinyalas would finish seventh. He did that on a soft rear. He went the whole race on a soft rear. Yeah, yeah. You know, being different, you know. Hey, it got him a seventh. You know, obviously that's you know, I think that would be a few places farther back if we didn't have what happened at the first lap and whatnot but you know you got to be there to, to to win it you got to be there you got to finish a better
1: performance than he's had for some time let's be honest uh, oh yeah definitely very much because he qualified much better we will see this with Van Vignoles, don't we? if he qualifies at the back he finishes at the back if he's somewhere towards the front he gives himself a chance so yeah and then
0: uh bender Oliveira, and alex marquez will round out the top 10 for that if we look at the championship Quattro is now on 147 points. That puts him 22 points ahead of Aleish. Wow. You put nine points on Aleish's total, and it's still a tight race. You know, again, Quattro is eking it out, but now it's like, woof, Because Bastianini's there, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But he's third at 94 points, and he crashed, right? Zarco has now jumped up to fourth, and he's on 91 points. Venaya is stuck on 81 points and he's fifth. Now, again, it was about this time in the year that he started to get things together last year and started to run down Quattro, who had, you know, presumably the insurmountable lead. But, you know, Quatraro did have his problems and wasn't finishing. So anything is ever possible in MotoGP, but highly unlikely because, I mean, I think Quattro might be in the form of his life right now. Mm. He's just riding the wheels off of a bike that has no place winning races and he's doing it. Uh, all marks to Quattraro. I, I don't have enough adjectives in my vocabulary to tell you how great of a ride that actually was. Gifted a little bit, but I I don't know if Benia had anything for Quattraro because Quattraro was just so metronomic, so metronomic.
1: It's what we see. If Quattraro gets out in the lead early on in a the race, then it's a challenge and a half to reel him in, let alone get past him. If he's stuck in the pack, if he's got, you know, that armada or Ducatis in front of him, then we know he has trouble. So I don't think anybody was going to catch him on Sunday, to be honest, uh, Jim. The the problem for Banyard this year is that he he didn't have Aprilia's more or less, not like this, he didn't have them to deal with last year. And certainly not Aleish. I mean, Aleish did come on strong in the second half of the year but he didn't have Bastianini sort of roughing up at the front either. So he's got more people to deal with than he had last year. So I just think 66 points is is just an insurmountable challenge for him. I mean, if you look at Espargo 22 points behind, then Bastianini, 53. I mean, that's a huge gap. So this championship, I think, as things stand, assuming that nothing terrible happens to interrupt things in terms of injuries or whatever, I think this is between Quateraro and Espargo now. Agreed there are some good tracks for Aprilia coming up. Yes. However,
0: I would not put, I would not put it past them to win at Aragon again. Yeah. I kind of think Saxon ring may, maybe an Aprilia track kind of that Silver,
1: run. Silverstone definitely is an Aprilia track.
0: Silverstone is an Aprilia track. So there are plenty of tracks.
1: Yeah. There. Uh, just on the Aspargo thing on sure. with his um little faux pas, let's say, um, one of the things that he said was that because the Aprilia pit was quite far up towards the last turn, that he just wasn't really able to see his pit board in the time that he had. Bear in mind, these guys are, you know, the speeds that they go going is just unbelievable. And he was, I mean, talking about consistency in MotoGP, this seems almost unbelievable to me, but from what I gather, the timing tower in Barcelona has a countdown system that's different to other races. So... Yeah. He was looking on the tower where they have the digital display of uh, how many laps to go and who's in which positions. And in Barcelona, the last lap they show is zero rather than one to go. And he looked at the zero and thought that was it. Race over. Now, there's still no excuse because, as you say, Jim, you don't finish until you see a checkered flag or you run out of fuel. And doubly so in Barcelona because they rave a checkered flag at the end of the pit lane as well. So you get two chances to see it. And as soon as I saw what he had done, I knew what had happened because he was kind of waving to the crowd. And we know with Alicia Sparger, if anything goes wrong, you know, the toys come out of the pram, you know, the handbags get thrown away and there's all sorts of arm waving and histrionics. But he was kind of waving in an apologetic way to the crowd as if to say, sorry, I didn't win. Um, And was sort of tapping the tank on the bike as if to say, well done, bike!" You know, so it was obvious that he thought the race was over. And also, the other thing I heard today was that on the digital dashes that they have on these bikes now, a checkered flag comes up on the screen as well when they Hmm. go across the finish line. So there are multiple ways for him to have known. But, you know, he's human. He made a mistake, you know, and he was the first to say, I made a mistake. His team put their arms around him and said, don't worry. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. I mean, it makes the sport interesting, doesn't it? And it's why we love some of the characters. Agreed. Well, with that,
0: I think we're out because we are way long <laughs> for this episode. It's going to be a long one, guys. Uh, so, again, we want your thoughts on everything that happened this weekend, so email us, motopod at motopodcast.com. Um, I want to be sure that you guys, if you want to, you can hit Rich on Twitter and Instagram. Just at Richard Jowett. At Richard Jowett. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at MotoRGV. Guys, I want you to know that next week is an off week, so there won't be a podcast. Rich and I are going to take a little break, get ready for two more back-to-backs, and then head into that five-week-long break where we've got some special shows for listener feedback, different things uh, for you guys there as well. Don't forget, the TT is running this weekend. Hopefully, I'll have it out before then, Should to to remind you that the TT is this weekend. The senior TT is Saturday, right, Rich? Either Friday or Saturday. I forget now. I I think it's Saturday, yeah saturday to end up the uh tt weeks there as well remember everyone to ride safe and we will catch you after the week break cheers bye everyone